Our story today takes place in Turkey, by way of China. But we're going to start here, in a quiet residential district of Istanbul called Zeytinburnu. The neighborhood is probably one of the more diverse. I mean, Istanbul is pretty diverse, um, but Zeytinburnu might be one of the most diverse. This is reporter Duri Buskaren. Because it's a neighborhood that a lot of people go to um, when they first move here. So you've got a lot of uh, Syrian refugee families. You've got people who are coming from Southeast Asia or different countries in Africa. Um, And there's one kind of street or a couple streets that are predominantly Uyghur families. Uyghurs are a largely Muslim minority in China, in a part of China called Xinjiang, which is to the far northwest of the country. In Istanbul, the Uyghur community is made up of roughly between 30 to 50,000 people. And in this part of Zeytinburnu specifically, if you walked along its streets, you'd notice a lot of Uyghur-owned shops. And so you've got uh, this bookshop and publishing house. Uh, You've got a construction company that's owned by a Uyghur gentleman. You have a halal butcher uh, where the guy behind the counter speaks Uyghur and also sells traditional uh, vinegars and noodles. And it's, it's really a community. I mean, people are able to feel a little bit like they're at home. Duri, who's based in Istanbul, was working on a story about the Uyghur community locally when she met this guy, Abdulwali Ayyub. I'm Abdulwali, and I'm a writer. He's also a linguist, a translator, and kind of a pillar in the Uyghur community in Istanbul. I met Abdulwali the way you meet most translators in Istanbul, through a friend of a friend. We were early, we were walking to an interview, and we passed by this bookstore, and he, he was kind of like, oh, hey, like let's, let's go see my friend. Um, I'm publishing a book here. This is a publishing, publishing house in uh, Zeytinburnu. Teklumukan Uyghur Publishing House, and they have a bookstore here. Oh, that's lovely. Can we take a look at it? Of course, yeah. But I see all of the Arabic script. Yeah. And so we walked Those in. Are... Oh, and are, is that a Uyghur translation of 1984? Yeah, that one. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's great. And when you walk in, it's really just one hallway. Um, there's a line of bookshelves on one side, and they are all uh, either Uyghur translations of popular books, or they are Uyghur novels written by Uyghurs in Xinjiang or elsewhere in the diaspora. Abdulwali points out a book he recently published here. And that one is my book. A collection of essays with an orange cover. Ah, I like your cover design. <laughs> it's nice. These are from Uyghur scholars, Uyghur history of Uyghur ideology and the history of um, Central Asia and history of uh, Silk Road. And we were looking at these books and he was introducing me to the different authors and we realized that the majority of these authors that have books in this um, on the shelf, they've been detained. For example, look, look this one. I love this author, Khalid Israel. She's a sweet lady. Yeah. Look, this lady arrested. She more than arrested? 70 yeah, more than 70 years old this lady arrested she wrote about a love love story through this way she told what happened to Uyghur in this 100 years now this publishing house slash bookshop in Istanbul that's filled with all these books written by Uyghur authors it's kind of like the bookshop is a capsule holding on to an identity a culture under threat Because many of these books wouldn't be published in China, where a targeted campaign of censorship by the Chinese Communist Party has been going on since the 1990s. 
And then in 2014, the Chinese state began cracking down on Uyghur, and specifically Uyghur Muslim culture in Xinjiang, in a much more serious way. Surrounded by high walls, barbed wire, what and watchtowers. quote, vocational skill educational training centers to, quote, carry out anti-extremist ideological the education. Their crime Satellite is their faith. Show. And the UN wants this investigated. Officially, the crackdown is to combat what the Chinese Communist Party think of as the three pillars of evil, extremism, separatism, and terrorism. But it's become clear in the last few years that Muslims in Xinjiang are almost exclusively the people being targeted. More than a million Uyghurs and Kazakhs, their neighbors, have been forcibly detained in what the Chinese government calls re-education centers. We'll be referring to them as re-education centers in this story because it's currently the most common phrasing. But Human Rights Watch and the experts we spoke to call them mass arbitration detention or concentration camps. There are kind of there are different iterations uh, of re-education, and depending on how much of a threat the authorities think you are, uh, your experience is going to be uh, different. This is Timothy Gross. He's assistant professor of Chinese studies at Rose Hulman Institute of Technology in the U.S. We called him to ask what happens at these camps. Your days follow a very strict routine. You wake up early in the morning. Um, you're required to study Mandarin Chinese, or, or what, what's now being called in China as the national language. You are required to march in place and sing patriotic cadences, uh, sing patriotic songs, uh, go through various forms of, of education in terms of learning about Chinese law, and more specifically learning about what is deemed illegal religious activities. Uh, sometimes those are in the forms of uh, videos. Uh, sometimes they're in the forms of skits. Imagine a daily routine where Uyghurs are not allowed to speak their mother tongue. Instead, they're learning Mandarin. And with that, becoming more Chinese. Outside of China, though, there's this publishing house in Istanbul. And it continues to publish books in Uyghur, by Uyghur authors. And there's fiction, there's books written by scholars, documenting Uyghur history. Abduwali tells us it's a way of keeping the language alive. This their voice from our homeland. And uh, we need to cherish it. We need to keep it alive outside. In your opinion, uh, what makes the Uyghur language so beautiful? This is reporter Dury again. Because of uh, we have a long poetic tradition that that makes it beautiful, like short and very meaningful. It's like fun. It's kind of entertainment. For example, when you're serving tea to a guest at your home, you need to say something in poetic way. For example, that Asmanangda Aibulup Jimmy Alam the Tankursem Pialangda Chaibulup Levlarang the Kudersem. It means I want to be a moon on your dark night and I want to see wherever you are and uh, I want to be a tea in this cup I want to touch your lips just the tea inside (laughs) yeah (laughs) this week on Kerning Cultures we're following Abduwali's story It's a story about trying to maintain a language that's coming under increasing threats of being stamped out. I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, 
stories from the Middle East and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Abdoweli, who is 46 now, grew up in Kashgar, a city in Xinjiang in the far west of China. Kashgar is a very old, ancient city. It's more than 2,000 years, like very ancient city in uh, Central Asia. It's an oasis city near the Taklikmakan Desert. So it's very Central Asian, but also has this historical connection to the rest of the world. And it's the symbol of Uyghur ancient culture and Uyghur traditional culture. Uh, It was on the Silk Road. Kind of near, uh, today it's near the border of Afghanistan, Pakistan, Tajikistan. So it's not only a cultural melting pot, it's also racial melting pot. And it keeps its own language, for example, the Uyghur, and its own literature, like Uyghur literature. So that's why I say that like Kashgar is the heart of Uyghur culture, because of it's the heart of Uyghur literature, it's heart of Uyghur education, and it's heart of Uyghur, like, we can say, resistance to oppression. And Abdullah, he grew up, both of his parents were teachers. His dad taught high school, his mom taught elementary school. He had three brothers, two sisters, so it was a big house of just learning and kids, and he, he's very close to his siblings. <laughs> when I grow up, uh, like, we don't have electricity. In our village, we don't have electricity. But uh, we have many books. This was during the 1970s. Like, my father and mother love books. So every like, night, we listen to the books my father read to us. His father, who was a teacher, had saved boxes of books that were forbidden during the Cultural Revolution in China. Um, so they were books that were by Uyghur authors. Uh, they were historical books. And he had to hide them in the house. My father always keep it very safe place. Uh, they give us one by one. We have a like line. First, my brother read it because he's old, and then my older sister read it. So I need to wait for a long time because I'm the f- number fifth. All books are Uyghur and uh, like restricted because of that yellow and red issue. Abdulali says that in the house. They had red books and they had yellow books. Revolutionary and anti-revolutionary. It wasn't the actual col- like color of the book jacket, but it was referring to the content. So if a book was a red book, red is kind of represents the Communist Party. And so those were the books that were okay to have. Yeah, red books we can read anytime. Those were the ones that you could read openly. Those were the ones that you could buy in a bookstore nearby. The yellow books... Those were the books that his father had hidden away. Um, Those were the ones that were by Uyghur authors. They were poetry. They were scholarly accounts of things that had happened. And those were the ones that they kept safe. But they didn't, like, tell anybody, just keep it. And, uh, like, uh, we have some boxes, big boxes. We cannot touch those boxes. Those are my father's treasure books inside. When Abdullah was five, though, he got a hold of one of the yellow books. Um, I mean, you know, he was like making like paper planes and stuff with like newspapers and things. But 
one day he he picked up a book that happened to be this historic like out of print poetry book that was a yellow book it was one of the forbidden books and he had ripped out the pages and made a boat <laughs> i turned it into uh, like um paper boat. <laughs> so I still remember my father was very angry, very disappointed. He didn't talk to me a week. He said, why do you, and if you want this, I have enough red books to you. He's like, you know, look, we have, we have all of these other books that like, why did you pick this one? Every time I think this, I feel very like upset because it's disappeared. Yeah. After that, it's disappeared because my father keep it during that hard time. His father loved these books because they were a testament to Uyghur history, a history Abduwali told us that the Chinese Communist Party was wary about. I think the main issue is like uh, mistrust. They don't trust Uyghur. Uh, They feel unsafe in front of Uyghur culture, in front of Uyghur identity. And they're afraid of this kind of history, this kind of historical memory of people. They want everything from the beginning. They treat our history as backward, old, and like uncivilized, something like that. They want to create a new culture for us. I think there are certainly elements of, of Uyghur culture that the CCP views as backwards. This is Timothy Gross again. By the way, when he says CCP, he's talking about the Chinese Communist Party. And in, in addition, uh, you know, because of, of its backwardness, its incompatibility with quote-unquote modern Chinese culture, that they're trying to weaken these elements and then outright eliminate them. He told us that there are some he called superficial elements of Uyghur culture that are more accepted by the CCP. Things like food, music, non-religious clothing, But the parts of Uyghur culture that they view as incompatible, like language, religion, physical spaces, like mosques, these are what they're cracking down on. So I think that those are the elements of Uyghur culture uh, that the CCP views as incompatible with developing a quote-unquote modern Chinese society. The substantial parts of the culture, like the language. It's unmistakably being replaced by Mandarin in almost all capacities uh, of society right now. So again, these are these are really, you know, you think about religion, you think about language. So th- those are the pillars of identity, right? Those are actually what, what make people think of themselves as belonging to a collective. When it was time for Abduwali to go to university, he decided to go to Beijing. And when he graduated, he took a post as a government-sponsored teacher in the countryside near Kashgar, where he grew up. He said his job was to teach Communist Party ideology to Uyghur farmers, who were very much uninterested. After some years, he became interested in linguistics, and he was offered a scholarship to study at the University of Kansas in the U.S. And so in 2009, that's where he went. But I uh, mainly study uh, cultural linguistics, linguistics and anthropology. We study uh, the relationship between the culture and the language, and the language and the politics, language and the identity. 
As he was studying, a lot was happening back home. It's believed the Uyghurs first started protesting over a brawl that took place at a toy factory last month in southern China. State television has aired plenty of footage of bodies, bloodied people, smoke billowing from overturned cars, and what you're seeing. In the summer of 2009, a group of Uyghur toy factory workers in Urumqi, the largest city in Xinjiang, had been accused of raping a Han woman. Han is China's majority ethnic group. The accusations led to a fight, and two Uyghurs died. A group of Uyghurs began protesting, calling for investigation into their deaths, and the protests turned into a riot where some 200 people were killed and thousands were wounded. Local police tried to control the swelling crowd by erecting barriers in the street. The city is this morning. Uh, the government now saying more than 1,400 people have been arrested as police quelled the violence over the last couple of days. But Abdul was on the other side of the world in Kansas. His family was in Kashgar, but he had friends in Urumqi. And so he was following the news and calling them in the middle of the night to check that they were safe. I didn't sleep. I just watch what's happening there. And then suddenly, he couldn't. Eyewitness accounts have been posted on the internet. Some accused police. About six o'clock, maybe seven, internet connection stopped. Phone calling stopped. The Chinese government had cut off the internet. Afterwards, the government increased its surveillance of Uyghur citizens. Within a year, they had installed 40,000 high-definition CCTV cameras around Urumqi, which made everyday life harder for Uyghurs. Many things could now attract attention. Even a simple thing like speaking Uyghur in public became harder. On top of that, public schools are taught Mandarin in China. And so Abdul thought, okay, let me move back to China and open language centers in Xinjiang for older kids and a chain of kindergartens where younger kids could learn Uyghur their mother tongue, because this would give them a strong foundation of the language. He called it the mother language movement. This is the time to do this. I have a plan. I need to start it. So he launched the schools about a month, a month after he arrived. And they did really well. I mean, they they were expanding to not just Uyghur, but also other ethnic minorities in China, uh, like Kazakhs. It was great. I mean, he, he, they got really popular. And then on August 20th, 2013, he was in one of his schools. I was at uh, my new kindergarten. It's very big, about 50 classrooms, very big yard. It's very traditional Uyghur neighborhood. And then when I'm decorating in that school. He was like decorating for an event. The three police came these police showed up and they arrested him. At the time, they didn't really give him a reason, but eventually they would accuse him of illegally soliciting donations for his kindergartens. They took me to a detention center. Uh, in Uyghur, we call it Yanbulak, Yanbulak Detention Center. It's very big. It's in this big industrial center uh, or industrial area. And he says that the cell he was kept in was about 16 meters square. So it's tiny, and there's a window on the roof, a small one in the door, and the toilet's in there too. And he's alone for a really long time. There's not a lot of food. Um, it smells bad. It's dark. Oh, condition is, is very bad. And um, when I came in, 
it's very dirty and when I came in the first thing I, I cried because of that smell of like toilet and in that place you have to stay and he was also questioned over and over um, they he was accused of being a terrorist he was accused of being a separatist and he was transferred to three different detention centers and he says that in some of the detention centers when he was in a group of people um, it was the prisons were crowded and within the prison cell you certain people within the prison cell would um, abuse other prisoners. He was sexually assaulted. He was terrified constantly that he would get sick. He would get skin infections. And um, like because of we don't have enough space on the bed, there's a long bed, big, and we sleep on the floor. Yeah, because of people very crowded, like skin diseases, infectious diseases. Like, I tortured with the um, itching problem, infectious skin diseases for six months. Like, bleeding because of you every day like this. Like, itching every day. Yeah, I mean, he, he disappeared. That's Arian Dwyer, his former professor at the University of Kansas. He was the first person that I had known known well that was incarcerated. I mean, he, he was actually an early sign of, of what was to come. And now dozens and dozens of my teachers and colleagues are imprisoned. It's been shocking and devastating. And these are people, I should say, including Abdueli, who did everything to live within not only the laws, but within the unspoken cultural rules. And I think Abdueli was doing everything right, but he was just a little too enthusiastic for them. Abdueli's former classmates started a petition calling for his release. His case was written up in the New York Times, and finally, after 17 months in detention, Abdueli was let go on November 14th, 2014. They asked me to come to the hall and uh, there's a two, one man and one woman. And this told me that you are released. I said, are you kidding? We don't have time to like, uh, kid with you and you are released. While Abdueli was in prison and for a few years thereafter, the Chinese government was preparing these huge cement buildings, dozens of them in Xinjiang, that would become these re-education centers. And they, they also started a series of increasingly restrictive rules. Uh, there was a ban on veils and abnormal, quote-unquote, beards. Those are two of the 75 behavioral indicators of religious extremism. That's what the government calls it. And these indicators are listed as part of a formal campaign they call the Strike Hard Campaign. Strike Hard Against Violent Terrorism. What we're told is that this is all about national security. And about ethnic unity, too. There's this idea that Xi Jinping, Chinese president, talks about. He calls it sinicizing, or aligning all Chinese societies with the Hun Chinese culture. And you also start to see uh, increased surveillance of Uyghurs. So there would be checkpoints where you have to basically identify yourself before you leave your neighborhood. People were told to turn in their passports. 
and they arrested the people who had been in prison or who had been participated in like July 5th that demonstration or any other like dissident any other political like differences any other idea any other like uh, feeling to like communist ideology and as this is happening um Uyghurs are also forbidden from speaking to people outside of China and so you hear from the diaspora I mean people here in Turkey would have relatives and would be talking to them constantly on WeChat or WhatsApp and they would realize that their relatives had deleted them or would outright tell them please don't contact me again it's dangerous that's when he knew he needed to leave the country I mean by 2016 he had his close friends were getting arrested his wife's cousin was accused of being a separatist he was noticing that website owners bloggers were getting arrested but he he just he knew he wasn't safe anymore um he knew his family wasn't safe anymore So three years ago, Abdullahi decided to move to Turkey, he and his family. And he chose Turkey because he already spoke some Turkish, and there's a big Uyghur diaspora in Istanbul, so it'd be easier for him to find work there. And he says that, I mean, he's he's on this plane, and he just kind of watched the screen to see where where they have the map, so he could see when he was finally off of Chinese soil. And when I am at the Kazakhstan soil, on the flight, I said, oh, good. I mean, even when he got to, flew into the airport in Istanbul, I mean, he was terrified he would somehow be arrested or turned back. Maybe the immigration stopped me. Maybe, like, they already informed Turkish immigration, something like that. When he finally passed through immigration and was in the airport, he's like, oof, yeah, I am free. So in Istanbul, um... I mean, he, he built a life here. Uh, he was really well-known. He's the kind of guy that if you're hanging out with him in Zeytinburnu, like, you will get stopped by people just to say hi. And he was really kind of a mouthpiece for the community. People trusted him. They trusted him to speak for them in a lot of cases. And, um, you know, he, he was sending his, his daughters. They're now 12 and 6, and so they were going to Turkish schools. Um, both kids speak, like, five languages because of all the places they've lived. Are you still able to talk to your family in Xinjiang? No, no, I can't because like three of them arrested. And uh, like my uh, one cousin and two nieces arrested. And my wife's cousin also. He started, um, one of the things he started doing when he got here was just writing, like finding the names of people who had been detained. Xinjiang University, president arrested. Kashgar University, president arrested. Xinjiang Normal University, president arrested. Xinjiang Medical University, president arrested. And Hoten Teachers College, president arrested. They are Uyghurs. And he then sent those names to the Uyghur Human Rights Project in D.C. And they've started listing and they, they put out reports of like the number of Uyghur intellectuals and activists and academics who have been detained just to kind of, it's like figuring out who's who. I mean, because there's no official list anywhere. Abdullahi has stepped into this role as an activist for his people through the language itself. He doesn't teach kindergarten anymore, but he writes like the collection of essays he showed Dury at the Teklamakan bookshop. 
He translates the stories of the Zaytsenbrenner neighborhood for global media outlets. And over the three years he's been there, he's become an important figure in the Uyghur community in Istanbul. He's somebody who knows everybody. And while Dury was reporting the story, he was applying for fellowships and PhDs around the world. And then in May 2019, he was accepted as a visiting scholar at an institution called EHESS in Paris. So, I mean, within two weeks, the, the family is told that you have a job in Paris and you have to leave in two weeks. <laughs> so it's going to be a new life, a new language. And he's really looking forward to it because it also means that he's close to a lot of seats of power and may have a chance to might have a chance to be an activist on an international level now. Right before he left, as the family was packing up their apartment, Jerry went by and visited him at home. Wali. All good? Oh. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. How does it feel? Good. So we just sat and, you know, we talked about his plans and what he's looking forward to. You know, the first things they're going to do when they go to France. First thing I want to do... Um, learn French because the first thing I get off the plane and I maybe the French French uh, like immigration officer will say that welcome to the French but I need to learn that word and then I will say something Bienvenue 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 You say bienvenue Bienvenue And you say merci Merci Oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Or at least that's my terribly accented French <laughs> for you. <laughs> I'm so yeah. excited for you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Can I ask you a weird question since we work together? It's okay. Was it ever, like, what was it like for you, like, kind of moving into this new role of being a translator and, like, kind of interpreting this incredibly traumatic thing um, for people who have no context? I mean, I'm sure, I know I asked really dumb mm-hmm. questions. No, I no, mean, no, 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 I don't and, think so. And it's traumatic, like, when you're going through these interviews over and over. I mean, what was that like for you? Um, like, um, for me, uh, sometimes I think that, uh, like, um, I'm not uh, only translating their words. I'm interpreting the, the oppression and the... the arresting and uh, like torture and uh, there because uh, it's hard to interpret something because uh, it's hard like it's unbelievable so when I translate the stories and it for me like my those like jail memory they come back my old jail memory will come would come back so it's very hard it's like for me it's personal Abdulwali's family arrived while we were talking. They, 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 they have a competition all the time. Who will be the first to hug the father? <laughs> <laughs> and I started to talk to them about how they were feeling about the move. Because the kids have had a hard time adjusting in Turkey. And so his 12-year-old daughter, like, that's already a tough time. Um, just, you know, in life, and, and now she's going to be going to a new school, she's nervous about making friends. I'm kind of nervous, because it wasn't easy to... I'm not really, like, extrovert person. I'm kind of, like, 
um, I can't socialize really good, so it's it's kind of hard for me to get friends. Everyone is like really really close to each other, so um, it will be difficult. Um, and do you tell your daughters about what's going on in Xinjiang? No, I I don't do this because I don't want to hurt her. I want her to understand this as a communist party and the system issue, not the issue between Han Chinese and Uyghur. And I don't want to grow uh, ethnic hatred to my daughter and to my daughter's heart. I want her to respect any kind of cultures, any kind of belief system, any kind of identity. I want her to love this world. Hey everyone, this is uh, KC producer Alex Atak. So Duri finished reporting this story in April, uh, April this year, which is when Abdueli left Istanbul for Paris. But just as we were finishing up the episode, uh, Duri got a voice note from him telling her that his plans had changed. All right, so last time you... Well, when we finished... Re- when you finished reporting the story, Abdueli was planning to go to uh, Paris, and that's where we left off. But then, since you finished reporting the story, his plans had changed. Could you kind of talk me through what, what's changed for him? So Abdueli did not stay long in Paris. Um, not too long ago, I got a message on WhatsApp from a uh, number, from a phone number in Norway. Okay. And he uh, told me that he was concerned about um, some Uyghurs in Turkey who were possibly going to be deported and wanted me to confirm it. So since since the move to Paris, he's actually taken a job in Norway. Um, he's moved. He's there now. And he's still advocating for Uyghurs in Turkey as best he can. Um, and I think that for him going forward, that's going to be the next phase is um, making sure that people in the diaspora are safe. You know, worldwide, we have this turn towards populism and nationalism in countries wanting to send refugees back. Mm. Um, And for the Uyghurs, that's no different. Um, A lot of them, wherever they've found refuge, a lot of them still don't feel safe. Uh, So the main thing he's following right now are deportations. This episode was produced by Duri Buscarin and Alex Atak, with editorial support from Dana Balut and myself, Hibba Fisher. Fact-checking by Zaina Duedar. Sound design by Mohamed Khayzat, and special thanks to Abdueli and his family for sharing their story with us, and to Ariane Dwyer and Tim Gross. Bella Ibrahim is Casey's marketing manager, and Nasri Atala is our business development manager. And a huge thank you to our new patrons supporting us on Patreon this week. Hoda and Sara, you are making the production of stories like this possible. If you're listening and you'd like to support our work, go to patreon.com slash kerningcultures. There's a link in the show description as well. Next time on Kerning Cultures, a story from the UAE about a group of volunteer undertakers who help repatriate the bodies of foreign workers back to their home countries. That's in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Until next time.